Thank you to our music team. Appreciate you all serving us so well. The children can be dismissed at this time. And let me ask the rest of you, if you will, please join me in 3 John, all the way toward the end of your Bibles. Last week we began looking at 1 John, and this week we finished looking at 1 John, seeing this personal letter from the Apostle John himself to the faithful man named Gaius. John wanted to encourage him in the work of supporting the gospel and being a fellow worker for the truth, and yet he wanted to do that in spite, uh, or rather in light of the difficulties that the gospel was facing in a church. It seems that Just like there are no perfect churches today, there were no perfect churches even under the leadership of the apostles themselves. Good reminder for us that no matter how hard you look, you won't find a perfect church until the Lord Jesus returns. Third John, this morning we will finish this book looking at verses 9 through 15. Please follow along as I read. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who wants to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift that your word is to us. These ancient words that are ever true, they will be true throughout all eternity. Not only are they true, they are trustworthy, and they alone have the power to change the sinner into a saint, to cause us to be born again. We recognize the power of your word this morning, and we thank you for the the practical realities, the sufficiency of your word. Lord, your word is not some pie-in-the-sky word to us that we wonder what it means. But as we see here in 3 John, it's real, it's practical, it touches the ground. It gives us instructions on how we ought to live. As we look at this situation that occurred almost 2,000 years ago, we see the same realities that occur today. There are people in churches who are faithful to continue the work of the gospel ministry, and sadly, there are people in churches who are diabolical to divide the work of gospel ministry, people who bully other people, people who demand their own way, people who even kick people out of the church because they want to faithfully serve the Lord. Jesus, we thank you that you are the chief shepherd. You are the shepherd of the flock. You oversee, as it's clear to us in the book of Revelation, you are actively overseeing and moving about every single one of your local churches. You make it clear in your word that the elders of the churches serve as under-shepherds, under the care of you, the great shepherd. We praise you for that as elders and as a flock. 
Because no human being, no matter if he's an elder or not, is perfect, is incapable of making a mistake, is, has blind spots and doesn't catch everything that everyone is doing. We couldn't possibly know everything, but you do, Lord. We thank you for the ways in which you have given us clear instruction to conduct ourselves within the church, to shepherd the church, to lead the church. But we thank you also, most especially, that nothing misses your gaze. Nothing happens behind closed doors that isn't right before your face. No scheming of a diatrophies goes unnoticed by you. And we praise you as well that none of it will go unpunished by you. Lord, we thank you for the gospel fruit that we have, by your grace, experienced here in this church. And we thank you for the gospel fruit that other churches, faithful churches to you in our community and around the world have also experienced. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to help us to enjoy those fruits and engage us in cultivating those fruits. We pray, O Lord, that you would protect this church and every church from anyone who would have the attitude of a diatrophies, one who would value themselves more than they value the gospel of Jesus Christ, one who would value themselves more than they value other people. The Apostle Paul clearly teaches us in Philippians 2 that the Lord Jesus Christ humbled himself, and we, as his followers, as his disciples, we must have that very same mindset. Jesus, you yourself said that a servant is not greater than his master. Please keep us whenever we are tempted or whether knowingly or unknowingly to run ahead of you. Please keep us from doing that. Keep us looking to you. We recognize that the greatest source of Christian humility will not be as we see, first of all, the deep, disgustingness of our own sin but the first the very basis for our humility will be as we see your glorious greatness so help us to be motivated by the right things lord and as we see your greatness to live in light of that greatness we believe what you say lord that man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of god And so together we say, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. While we may not all admit it, may not always like it, every single one of us in some way and at some point is an imitator. And we always imitate what or who we most value. You can see this most clearly in the lives of children, can't you? Whether you've raised them yourself or you've watched other people raise them or you're one who's grown up alongside of them and you just begin to notice these things. You see that the often repeated phrase, something like, she's a chip off the old block or a spitting image of her father, You see that in 3D every time you watch a child grow up in a home. Often, the child picks up on good things, but the reality is in a fallen world, the child usually picks up on the bad things as well. 
Children are imitators because that's how we naturally learn. We certainly, even in the light of all the different ways in which we process information, we certainly have our different ways where we learn primarily. You might be a, a, what is it, a kinetic learner? Or you might be a, a visual learner. You might process by seeing someone do it. You might process by reading information, internalizing it, thinking on it. Regardless of how it is that you learn primarily, every single one of us knows that most lessons are better caught than taught. You watch children grow up and they begin to do things or say things and you wonder, where did you learn that? And then you have a conversation with your wife and you realize, oh, that's where you learned that. I didn't realize I looked so silly doing those types of things. Then you've got to work through all your insecurities and, you know, all those things. But that's another sermon. The reality is we all imitate someone. And we always imitate what we value most. Why do children imitate their parents? Because their parents, regardless of how good they are, are who they value most. Because their parents are who they love most. Their parents are the ones they want to be just like. So, we are always imitating someone, even as Christians. We imitate our brothers and sisters around us for the good and sometimes for the bad. How many times have you been perhaps reading your Bible or maybe someone gave you a good book or maybe you've been having a conversation with a mature brother or sister who's been discipling you in some way And you realize that whatever thing that you had been taught when you were growing up or for X number of years is entirely unbiblical. You have one of those light bulb moments where you realize like, whoa, you mean you're not supposed to do that as a Christian? Whoa, you mean that the Bible is complete and God doesn't need to speak anymore outside of it? We all have those moments, those light bulb moments. We all have moments where we imitate whether it's good or bad. The reality is we always imitate what we love most, what matters to us most, and who really matters to us most. As the Apostle John closes out his letter to his dear friend, the beloved Gaius, he closes out in typical fashion in verses 13 to 15 with a warm-hearted, pastoral, friendly, deeply loving greeting, not only to Gaius himself, but also to every single person within his church. But before he does that, before he closes out this letter, John wants to point out to Gaius for the purposes of instruction and warning and for the purposes of encouraging him to keep up the faithful work of missionary support that he has already taken up, John wants to point out for Gaius two men. One will be one who Gaius should not imitate because it seems as though he's not from God, no matter if he claims it. The other will be one that Gaius should imitate. One man, a man named Diotrephes, is a man to correct. The other man, a man named Demetrius, is a man to commend. So let's take it that way. Looking at these two men, first of all, we see in verses 9 to 10 in Diotrephes, a man to correct. 
This is helpful for us, even though this is ancient, these are ancient words, this was an ancient problem, all of these men are long dead, the reality is the problem itself is not long dead. You can probably, you shouldn't do it, but you could probably sit around at the potluck today and tell stories of church bullies, people that manipulate others people that take advantage of others, people that want to run with their own agenda above everyone else's agenda, you could probably have conversations about that. So the reality is, although this is a negative example, we can learn from it so that we can spot these types of people, this type of attitude, and cut them off in truth and love, and hopefully they'll humbly repent before they get a position like Diotrephes had, one of influence. So we meet in verses 9 to 10 in Diotrephes, a man to correct. John says, I have written something to the church. You'll notice the past tense nature of that. It seems that John has already written something to the church. Some speculate it's 1 John or 2 John. I tend to think it's probably a letter that we don't have anymore probably because Diotrephes destroyed it. He made sure that no one had it. John wrote something to the church. He says, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So what we see, first of all, in verse 9, is the attitude of Diotrephes that needed to be corrected. And then in verse 10, we see the actions that sprang from that attitude. Verse 9 tells us the root of the problem, and verse 10 tells us the fruit of the problem. What it was inside of him that was wrong, and then the way what was inside of him worked itself out to the outside of him that really affected the entire church. So we see, first of all, that the wrong attitude of the Diotrephes was that he liked to put himself first. This is what John says. Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first. Now in the Greek, that likes to put himself first is the one who likes to put himself first, and it actually is at the beginning of the sentence. John wants to emphasize the main problem with Diotrephes is that he loves himself. In fact, this is, a, this is the only time this Greek word is used in the New Testament, and it's a compound word that puts together the words for love, brotherly love, and preeminence, or to be first. What he loves most is to be first, to be considered as number one, to be the one in charge. In fact, that's often what the word tends to mean, to be the one who loves to rule and be in charge. Now, John doesn't tell us every single detail about this. It's unclear whether Diotrephes was a leader in the church, though it seems like he probably was. Some speculate that it was his house that the church actually met in. We don't know that for sure, but what we do know is that Diotrephes had a serious, serious problem. A problem that corrupted not only his own life, but a problem that corrupted the entirety of that church. Sadly, too many of us know exactly what that looks like. 
He says that the attitude that he held was one of self-promotion, self-centeredness. Diotrephes absolutely wanted to make sure that his will was done regardless of whose kingdom he claimed to be in. Not only did he like to be first, but in fact he rebelled against the apostles' authority. Now, some of our translations read differently here. Let me try to clarify that a little bit. The ESV says that Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. Literally, the text says something like, does not receive us, does not accept us, does not welcome us. But it's in the sense of this letter that John wrote to the church, Diotrephes got a hold of, said, yeah, we're not going to do that. And by implication, doesn't acknowledge the authority that the apostle has. So the ESV takes a little bit of leeway there to translate into the word its meaning. Other translations say doesn't accept, doesn't welcome, and that's perfectly accurate. But he doesn't welcome John and John's uh, fellow authorities. He doesn't welcome them by rejecting them. What do we call someone who has someone who is over them and yet says, yeah, I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. I mean, we call them all kinds of things, right? But what do you call them in a sanctified way? At the very least, rebellious. See, Diotrephes' love for self, love to be first, seemed to then lead him to an attitude that said, I run this church. And no one outside, not even the Apostle John himself, is going to tell me what to do. How much audacity does it have to take to reject the authority of an apostle? A verified, walked with Jesus, suffered tremendously for him, apostle. That is self-centeredness to the nth degree. He is arrogant, he is proud, he is exactly what John is telling Gaius to watch out for. You see, so far Gaius has been faithfully loving the brothers. You remember John's church, under his own authority, has sent out preachers to preach the truth of the gospel. And they would take trips. It seems more like a short-term type of a trip. They would go out for a while they would be dependent on the hospitality of other Christians, just like the disciples were in Mark chapter 6. And then they would come back to the church and they would give a report to the church about how it went. And these brothers, who had already gone out and come back, told John and the church, hey, Gaius is a faithful, faithful man. He loved us so well. He took care of our every need. He treated us just like he would have treated the Lord. And so now in light of that, there is another person in the church, or I tend to think it was probably a, a close-by community church, though it could be that Gaius and Diotrephes were in the same church. There's another man in the church who is the exact opposite of Gaius. He loves himself. He calls it his church and not the Lord's church. And so you can see how Gaius would be Tempted to be influenced by this one who was a bully. We all understand the, the, necess the necessity of standing up to bullies, 
But if you've ever experienced what it's like to be around a bully, you know that your palms tend to sweat a little bit at least. Maybe you do stand up to them, but it shakes you a little bit. You may have the courage to push through that fear, but you experience it. And so John wants Gaius to know, as he's probably experiencing, wondering to himself, is Diotrephes going to kick me out of the church the way he's been kicking everybody else out of the church if I keep doing this? Well, maybe I should not do this quite so much. John's saying, no, 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 don't be influenced by this negative man. And so he's rebelling against the authority of the apostles, of John himself. He's got a poor attitude. It's seen in the way that he loves himself. He loves to be first. It's seen in the way that he will not acknowledge authority. He's the type of person that says, no one's going to tell me what to do. And yet, clearly, He's in the church. And he's wielding that abuse of authority over people that belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, John doesn't tell Gaius to actually do anything about it. In fact, he, we'll see in just a minute here, John says, I'm going to do something about it myself. But elsewhere, you may remember when we studied the letter to Titus, you may remember that elsewhere in the Bible, we have clear instructions on how to deal with someone like this. Titus chapter 3 verses 9 and through 11 says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, and dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, like a Diotrephes, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So a, a church that would allow a man like a Diotrephes to continue on his merciless ministry of evil would be a church that would allow a self-condemned, warped man to wreak havoc in it. There are ways of dealing with this type of person. But John here wants to encourage Gaius to continue on as he unpacks for him the realities of his attitude. And then he unpacks for him in verse 10 the realities of his actions. The, the root problem was the way he viewed himself. He was the most important person in that church. But then the root problem manifested itself in three ways, John tells us. There in verse 10... He says, so if I come, it could be that John may or may not come. It could be taken as, so when I come, it's not quite clear how the conditional clause should be translated. Probably something like when I come. I don't think that John saw this problem and thought, eh, we'll let it go. Though, it could be John's confidence that the Lord Jesus shepherds his church. You remember the letter to the seven churches in Revelation? Jesus calls those sinful churches to repent. And he says, if you don't, in some cases, I'll spit you right out of my mouth. He says, if you don't, those who lay on the bed of immorality, I'll make them lay on the bed of death. Jesus has a way of shepherding his own flock quite well. So it could be that John says, if I come, 
that he's just trusting that Jesus will do whatever he wants to do to Diotrephes. We're not quite sure, but John does say, if I come, I will bring up what he is doing. The word is to call attention to, or, or literally translated, to bring up. I'll bring up what he is doing. And in what manner do you think he would bring it up? Publicly. Public sin requires public rebuke. This is the pattern throughout church discipline. If everybody knows about it, then everybody needs to know it's a sin. The actions of Diotrephes were so public and so wicked that John says, I'm going to go nuclear on them. Okay, he didn't say that. I said it. But that's basically what he said. John says, I'll deal with it myself. I'll call him out. What is he going to call out exactly? Well, he says, if I, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. So we see that the first action of Diotrephes was that he was slanderous. There are different ways to translate this. Uh, the legacy standard translates it most accurately, unjustly disparaging us with wicked words. The idea here is that John was ta- or Diotrephes was talking negatively behind John's back about John. John doesn't give detail. He doesn't have to give detail. He just calls it what it is. He's talking trash. And so I'm going to deal with it, John says. Now, it could be that in this honor-shame culture, certainly to not receive the ones that John sent out was to not receive John himself. And so some scholars say, well, it was necessary by implication of the culture that John go there and call him out publicly so that John's honor would remain intact. But others say, yeah, but Jesus does things differently than that. We don't exactly know what John's motivation for it was, but we know that John sees a problem and he deals with the problem. He's using his words to cut down the apostle. We know what that's like. If you have a Facebook account, you know what that's like. And delete it. Just get rid of it. But the sad reality is, if you've been in a church for a couple years, you know what that's like. Did you hear what so-and-so did? (gasps) Really? Who do those elders think they are? This happens, doesn't it? Can I give you a piece of advice? Be the one that stops gossip, not propels it. Can I give you a second piece of advice? Don't believe everything you hear. I've been so shocked recently. Maybe it's just because of the spirit of the age and everybody seems to be an expert on everything. Not actually, they just think they are. It's so shocking to me how many times people can say, hey, so-and-so said this, and then... Someone believes what they said. They believe that secondhand information. I can't believe they would say that. And then when you actually talk to the person that was claimed to have said that, and you ask them, did you say this? They say, I didn't say that. Where'd you hear that? Don't believe secondhand information when you hear it. Wait until you verify whether or not it's true. Be wise. Sometimes people intentionally 
talk trash or wicked nonsense, as John calls it. Sometimes people unintentionally talk that way. Sometimes there's a spin on the story, and it's not on purpose. It's just that maybe that person's emotions got the best of them, and they changed the story a little bit. Or maybe they just don't quite remember it in all its details. It's kind of like when you go fishing, right? When you catch the fish, it's this big. When you tell the story of catching the fish, it's at least this big. I mean, it took three of us to pull it in. It's just like that. You see, our sinful nature compels us to paint bigger pictures than something actually is. And our sinful nature compels us most especially in cases like this, in people like this that talk behind people's back to make the story much worse than it actually is. So be the one that stops gossip and slander. And then secondly, don't believe it until you verify whether or not it's true. Because if if that story is foolish and you believe it, well, guess what that makes you? Just as foolish as that person. So don't believe it. Diotrephes was slandering. Secondly, he was not practicing hospitality. He wasn't welcoming. And this is actually the same word that John uses in verse 9 to say that he does not acknowledge our authority. He does not welcome us. In addition to not welcoming us, John, and, and his, the brothers that he's sending out, he doesn't welcome the brothers. He says, and not content with that, or in other words, and as if it's not enough to talk trash about us, He also does not welcome, he refuses to welcome the brothers, John says. These are the same brothers he talked about in verse 7. The brothers who had gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. So the picture is, John's church sends out these brothers, and Diotrephes says, "Uh uh-uh, you ain't coming in here. We're not giving you a place to stay. We don't care what your message is. Maybe Diotrephes just wanted to be so careful to guard doctrine that he didn't let anybody in. But I think it's all linked back to the fact that he loved himself. Because what if these brothers was a better preacher than Diotrephes? What if they were more kind than Diotrephes? Which it wouldn't have been hard to be. But what if they outdid Diotrephes and all of a sudden this church has a different fan club? He loved himself, so he would not receive anybody else. And not only did he not receive anyone else, John says he refuses to welcome the brothers, and also, end of verse 10, he stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. So he wasn't hospitable, and he was controlling. It wasn't enough for him to just have a personal conviction, a wrong one, but just a personal conviction, he then had the prideful audacity to then say, and you must hold my conviction too because I'm right and you're wrong. Are you getting the sense of the wickedness of this man? There were other faithful people in the church, just like Gaius, who when they found out that someone had a credible witness from John himself, preached the true gospel said, hey, we will serve you in any way. Welcome into our home. We'll feed you. You've got a place to stay. Anything you need, we will make sure that you get it. And then Diotrephes hears about it. 
And then he busts in and throws the, the traveling preacher out and tells the people, you better not ever do that again, and I'm going to ensure that you never do that again because you're out of this church. Seriously? The attitude and the action that Diotrephes sh- shows us is not only the exact opposite of what John was commending in Gaius, but it's the exact opposite of the way that Jesus said his disciples must live. Mark 10, 42 to 45, we'll get there some year. Jesus tells the disciples, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Which, by the way, the name Diotrephes means nursling of Zeus. It could be his real name, or it could be that John just uses that to describe his pagan actions. But he says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant or slave. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the way that it works in the church. Not the way that Diotrephes wants it to work in the church. The way that Jesus says it works in the church. Do you want to truly be great in the eyes of Jesus? Then you need to be a servant. Then you need to die to yourself every moment of every day and say it doesn't matter what my preference is or my agenda is or my opinion is, I'm going to serve other people. That's what real greatness is in the eyes of the maker, the, one who, the only one who matters. While the brothers that John was sending out went out for the sake of the name, Diotrephes proved that he was devoted to his own name. He may have said he cared about the name of Jesus, but he didn't. He cared about the name of Diotrephes. That's the real issue here. The name that Diotrephes valued most was not the name above all names, but was his own name. That's always the key issue when someone disrupts the ministry of the gospel in a local church. What they love most is not Jesus, what they love most is themselves. Now, it could be that they're having a particularly bad season and the Lord will rebuke them and correct them and they very well may be a true disciple, a true follower of Jesus. They're just out of bounds and Jesus will knock them back into bounds. But it could also be, and it seems that we'll see in verse 11 that John more so suspects that Diotrephes really isn't a brother altogether. Anyone who intentionally disrupts the ministry of the gospel in a local church shows that they are not devoted to the name of Jesus Christ, but to their very own name. They'd rather be Lord of that church than acknowledge the reality that Jesus is Lord of that church. That's the real danger. The servanthood of Jesus Christ in his journey to the cross is not something only to marvel at, though it is. It's also something to imitate. 
It's something to shape our lives around, to follow in his footsteps, as 1 Peter 2 says. To be a servant because Jesus is a servant. The way that Jesus suffered and died is the way that I live, dying to myself all the time so that I can meet the needs of the church and others. Is there really any other way to live when we acknowledge what Jesus Christ has done? Can you really say, God, I'm a sinner, and I come to you now as my Savior? I believe that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for my sin, absorbed your wrath, Father, on the cross, and then rose from the grave to show that he had won, he had secured victory for his people, secured freedom from his people. I believe that message. And yet I want to live however I want to live, Jesus. Can you really say that? You see, Gaius embodies one who embraces the gospel, the truth. Diotrephes embodies one who works against the truth, even inside of the church. It's always a question of whose name matters most to us. If the name of Jesus Christ matters most to you, then make no mistake about it. You will be a servant. But if your name matters most to you, then make no mistake about it. You will be a distraction to the ministry of the gospel. So we see then a man to correct, but then, by God's grace, we see a man to commend in Demetrius. Verses 11 through 15, John closes out his letter and he highlights for us one more man. The first in verse 11, he gives us a principle that emulates or, or rather that encapsulates what Gaius is supposed to do and what he is not supposed to do as seen in what he's not supposed to do in Diotrephes and what he is supposed to do both in what he's already doing and in Demetrius himself. So verse 11 gives us the overall principle that John wants to teach Gaius and that God wants to teach us. This is one of two commands in this letter to imitate. The other command comes in verse 15 when he says to greet the friends. It's the most important command. It's the most important thing that John wanted Gaius to know. He says, beloved, he's turning back to him and he's grabbing him by the shoulders. He's saying, the one I love. We share so much in Christ, brother. Listen to me when I tell you, don't imitate evil, but imitate good. He gives them that principle. He says, imitate, to be the example of, to mimic, to follow what's good and not what's evil. It comes right on the heels of talking about Diotrephes because he's the perfect example of what is evil. Disrupt the ministry of the gospel in the local church, and that is evil, John says but support the ministry of the gospel in the local church. And that is good, John says. We don't have time, but we could trace these themes of good and evil, uh, being of God and of, of uh, having seen God and not having seen God through First and Second John. But suffice it to say that John is doing what he does best, putting people in one of two categories, and that's it. You either imitate evil or you imitate good. There is no neutral. Those are the options before you. Imitate evil like Diotrephes 
or imitate good, Gaius, like you're already doing, and like Demetrius is also doing as well. Gaius was already living in this, but like I said, I think what was going on was that he was tempted to be influenced by this man who maybe had already threatened to kick him out of the church. It could be that Diotrephes came to Gaius and said, hey, listen, you keep it up, you're going to be out of here. That's speculation. I don't know if that's true, but certainly Gaius would have known about people who were getting kicked out of the church. And so John says, brother, don't imitate Diotrephes. Keep doing what you're already doing. And then he gives them a reason. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. You know what he's saying, don't you? Whoever does good is a Christian. Whoever does evil is not a Christian. Now, he's not talking about every once in a while you fall into sin and you repent of your sin, but he's talking about the pattern and the consistency of your life. Whoever does good as a pattern, a general pattern, and and when they sin, repents of that evil, confesses it, goes back to the Lord, and gets right back to doing good. 1 John 1, 9, for instance. John knows there won't be perfection in the disciples of Jesus Christ. Look at him. But he also knows that if you've seen God in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that has a profound and significant impact on you to completely change you. You can't see God and live as though you've never seen him before, even though you say, I know Jesus. That's his point. So he's encouraging this brother with the reality of the character that salvation produces. And then he introduces him to the man, Demetrius, who was probably carrying this letter and was probably one of the brothers that went out for the sake of the name. Another preacher whom John had sent to the area who he wanted Gaius to to bring into his house and provide for him. And so he gives him then a threefold commendation. Demetrius has received a good testimony or a good witness from everyone, he says. Probably everyone in the church. But he doesn't specify that. In order to be an elder in a church, a man has to have a good reputation amongst outsiders, Paul says. Unbelievers have to be able to say, yeah, he's a good man. I don't believe all his Jesus stuff, but he's a good man. And so probably Demetrius, even, his, even the unbelievers that knew him would have said, he's a good man. He's a trustworthy guy. You can, you can trust him. Not only did he have a good reputation among everyone, but then John says, and he's received a good testimony from the truth itself. That's quite a statement. You see, a testimony from everyone is subjective. It's based on what everybody thinks about him. But a testimony from the truth itself is objective. It's the verifiable truth. It's it's as if John is saying, if the Bible stood up as a character witness for Demetrius, the Bible itself would say, he's a good guy. You can trust him. And then John adds his own personal apostolic affirmation He says, we also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. 
Three commendations for this man, Demetrius, in just one sentence, or two maybe. John wants Gaius to know that Demetrius is a trustworthy man because he lives a life of character. Character that's on display, character that is seen by everyone around him. And then in verses 13 to 15, John closes his letter to Gaius by basically saying to him, I had more to say, but I'm so eager to say it to you face to face. Or today's vernacular, he might say, a text message isn't going to do. We got to talk it out, which is a good policy. I got to see you face to face. And then he tells him, peace be to you. The Hebrew greeting would have been shalom. What did Gaius need in the midst of such strife within gospel ministry? He needed peace. He needed peace to know that what he was doing was the right thing. What he was doing was the thing that the Lord Jesus wanted him to do. And what he was doing was the very thing he needed to continue doing, no matter what it might cost him with a diatrophies. He says to greet the friends, which is a reference to the church members uh, of Gaius. And he also says to, or he says that the friends greet you. So John's church greets Gaius. And then he asks Gaius to greet his own church each by name. Which is a sweet picture, isn't it? John the Apostle, the last remaining apostle, basically says to Gaius, hey, next Sunday morning, I want you to go up to every single person there and I want you to tell them all by name, John sends his greetings to you. That's the type of love that embodies the church, most especially in its leadership. John commends the character of Demetrius in contrast with the condemnable character of Diotrephes. We can never overestimate the tremendous value of character. What's most important about you is not what you have or what you own or what you've accomplished. What's most important about you is who you are. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. Do you believe that? Do you believe that it's better to have exemplary character than silver or gold? If someone came to you and said, in this hand I've got a check for $10 million. In this hand I've got a guarantee that your character will be exemplary for the rest of your life. Which one do you choose? Because the Bible says the one you should choose is the character. You know why he had this character? Because the name of Jesus Christ mattered most to Demetrius. Just like the name of Jesus Christ mattered most to Gaius. And absolutely unlike the name of Jesus Christ mattered most to Diotrephes. We're all imitators. And we will always imitate those who matter most to us. 
Here in 3 John, we've seen two men who imitated good because the name of Jesus Christ mattered most to them, Gaius and Demetrius. And yet we've also seen one man who, according to John, imitated evil because his own name mattered most to him. Each of us has a choice to make, don't we? We will imitate someone. Who will we imitate? And whose name matters most to you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to you, we first of all want to confess to you all the times in which your name has not mattered most to us. We desperately want to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect, but we don't attain that perfection. It is because we don't attain that perfection that we rely on your perfection, Jesus. We know it's not our goodness or our character or anything that we've done that will get us into heaven and pay for our sins. It's your goodness, it's your character. It's everything that you have done for us that will get us into heaven. We rejoice to know you, Lord Jesus. And we pray that our our living would be in line with that knowledge of you. Lord, would you help us to make your name what matters most in our lives? And would would you reveal to us throughout this week as we pray and think and meditate on your word, would you reveal to us ways in which we live as though our name mattered most? We don't want to do that, Lord. It's just that we can't see everything about ourselves. So help us. Purify out of us the sin that remains so that we would more fully enjoy you and more fully represent you. We thank you for the instruction of your word. Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness of sin. We thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask that all of these things would be actively at work in us so that we might live for you every moment of every day. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.